Hey guys, welcome to episode 9 of Super High Sci-Fi. It's uh, just Grant and I again today. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Grant. How are you? You know, I'm okay. Well, you're about to get a whole lot worse because uh, today we're going to be discussing not only some breaking news items for everybody to enjoy about Star Wars, but also what our favorite and I guess least favorite uh, Star Wars Expanded Universe properties are. All right. Yay. I know. Everybody's excited, so you can get out your list at home and play along. Oh, wait, they're legends now, remember? That's going to be, I guess, the, the kind of a, a meta discussion attached to it. Mm -hmm. But um, let's start with some things that are going to probably be legendarily bad and uh, hit up the news. Okay. Well, first news item we got here is something that I, th I think you will find uh, to be legendarily bad. And that is that Akiva Goldsman has been tapped to help Michael Bay turn the Transformers into a Marvel-style connected universe. So apparently they want to go for turning Transformers into a mega-franchise, and there's going to be tons of spin-off movies, TV shows, that sort of thing. And apparently Steven Spielberg is behind this as well. He's lent his support, mm. and Michael Bay is going forward full steam on this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're doing that. What do we think? I guess my first question would be why? And then my my second... Money, of course. Yeah. I mean, I respect people's motive in their... The, the famous Michael Caine quote that he never saw Jaws 3, but he saw the house it built. Oh, Jaw no, no, Jaws the Revenge. Oh, Jaws Revenge, yeah, sorry. But I respect that angle of Hollywood and media, but at the same time, it's just, why would why do you need to add a layer of complexity onto this already? People still see these movies in droves, even though it's just like three hours of noise and things moving. Right, it's like three hours of giant rock'em sock'em robots, basically, and there's, there's that's, that's what puzzles me about this, really, because if you watch Michael Bay's Transformers movies objectively, there really is no coherent story between them. And especially there's no thread that ties any of the movies that exist now together, which seems like a really weird thing for them to want to turn into a Marvel-style connected universe, because first, most of the Marvel movies out there are pretty good, and two, they all connect to each other, whether it's kind of a reference in films or a major plot point like the Tesseract. And I think they did a really good job of planning all of that out. It doesn't seem like Transformers has had that same level of planning. Plus, we all know the Michael Bay Transformers movies just suck ass. Yeah, what's that quote you like? Astrocious trash? Yeah, astrocious trash. Uh, supposedly the Reverend Al Sharpton. Yeah, it's just... I don't understand it, and I totally take your point that I've watched all the Transformers movies, and beyond... Uh, what's his name? When I no, I was going to say beyond Sam uh, Witwicky there, Shia LaBeouf's character, but that's not even true because there's the Mark Wahlberg one now. I guess aside from the Transformers themselves, there's really nothing that is particularly contiguous between them. I think probably it's just Shia's character and Optimus Prime are the only threads that run through the series, and Shia's character not even all the way. Right, so it's just the Transformers and Optimus Prime, I think, is one of the few that has been consistently prominent in all of them. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I'm sure it will be financially successful. I just, 
I, I don't really see it being a, a great thing for sci-fi. No, I'm. it's a great thing for the shareholders, but I don't think it's going to be good for sci-fi. I mean, if you look at Michael Bay's career, for those of you who don't know, he started out making commercials and music videos, and he's really good at that. He keeps the camera moving. He has made some really good movies, though. Knows how to point the camera at hot women. Like, he's got his particular talents, but... He has made some good movies. Okay. And have you ever seen The Rock? I have seen The Rock, that's yes. A, that's a Michael Bay movie. It was good, uh, so I give him his props. He has had really good movies in the past, but the Transformers franchise has just been one cataclysmically retarded clusterfuck after another. I mean, especially the the series low point, Revenge of the Fallen, where the end fight scene of the movie was half the fucking movie. So well, boring. Was that the one where Optimus Prime executes Megatron? No, that's the uh, that's Dark of the Moon. See, they all run together to me because it's just something happens, a building blows up, there's lots of noise and sound effects, and then there's a bunch of special effects and robots are punching each other. Yeah, I mean that's I I some of the Transformers series that have been on TV like uh Transformers Prime, which was on the Hub a few years ago. It was an original series they started on there, and that was actually pretty good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the hub is now called Discovery Family. They rebranded it. Uh, but those were pretty good, and they've had some good other animated properties. Not anything recently that I've seen, but the movies themselves, which is what they're trying to do spinoffs of here, they've all been really bad. I just don't get besides really money. Really bad. Yeah, really, really, really bad. bad. I don't understand why, besides, you know, because money that they're doing this. It'd be interesting to see how it turns out. Um, here's my two cents. I, I really hope that it fails because they need to just stop raping the corpse of Transformers, the franchise, and maybe just let it die for a while. Then they can bring it back maybe with some, some new people at the helm. I, I'm a little conflicted. On the one hand, I would love to see Michael Bay put backwards on a horse and pointed out of Hollywood and just sent away to die in the desert. But on the other hand, I have to think that in the same way that Marvel Universe, I mean, the way that like John Favreau did Iron Man and Iron Man 2, I believe, and he kind of shepherded the Marvel Cinematic Universe into being. But then it, it, it branched off after that. They've had everybody from uh, Joss Whedon to Kenneth Branagh involved. That's right. He did Thor. Yeah, and that's everybody's kind of brought their own individual directorial creative thing, I guess, for lack of a better term, to each of the movies they did. So I have to think that Michael Bay can't possibly be involved with all of these. So maybe having some different people helming these individual connected Transformers universe projects may yield a little more diversity in the Transformers films as opposed to just Michael Bay's brand of, you know, explosions and stuff. Yeah, I you know I agree with that. I agree with that. that's a really good point. I don't want Michael Bay to be involved intimately with every one of these spinoff movies. I don't think he can do it just because who has the time to yeah. do that. And yeah, I really think Transformers just needs a different approach. And much like the spinoff Star Wars movies that we're gonna get, I hope that we get a director in some of these that gives it a new spin. I mean. Maybe, can we hope, like, Ridley Scott, will he do a Transformers movie? Oh, he could. I mean, that would <laughs> probably be a good Transformers movie. And I, I, that's really my point, that Michael Bay can't do them all, so 
they're not going to stop making them. So I guess the choice is between continuing the direct lineage of just the Michael Bay explosion movies or maybe letting some more people into the Transformers clubhouse to see what they can do with it. All right. And speaking of things that are spinning off and branching out, we're actually getting a a return of a much-loved sci-fi franchise. I love it. And that's the X-Files. So they about, about a week ago, there was news that they're going to be filming an additional kind of limited run uh, miniseries of the X-Files this summer. Six new episodes about, we don't know what, because they're going to film this summer, but uh, Gillian Anderson. Aliens. Yeah. Calling probably. it right now, aliens. Yeah. Gillian Anderson, David Duchovny, Chris Carter, all the people behind the original series back on board with this. They're doing it. I think this is really cool. As long as they tend to focus these episodes more on the standalone rather than the mythology, because I always thought that once you got past season four, the mythology arc of the series became far too complicated to keep up with. And I always enjoyed the standalone episodes more, like the monster of the week kind of framework they were using Mm -hmm. for a long time in the run. Yeah, I think that's when the X Files is at its strongest when it was. The monster of the week, but if there was some sort of overarching plot, it wasn't. The story wasn't consumed by the overarching plot; it was just kind of part of it. So I hope that they can restrain themselves from, like you said, jumping too much into a return to, you know, here's our ultra complex backstory. You need to read like the companion book before you sit down and watch this series. Right, like the stuff they were doing at the end of the series in two thousand two, where. Uh, you know, they had, like, super soldiers that mm-hmm. were made of, like, some special metal or something, or they reacted to a special metal, and, you know, uh, the the cigarette-smoking guy was still alive, and they find him in the uh, Anasazi huts and all that, and uh, it just got way too damn complicated, <laughs> and it didn't make very much sense either. Yeah, uh, but the cigarette-smoking man is coming back, though. I read that. Oh, cool, yeah. He said I he's did. free to come back. Cool, I look forward to that, then. Uh, X-Files... Uh, it just looks like everybody, they can still do this. I mean, David Duchovny is still in good shape, and, I mean, he's got nothing to do, I think. He and, hasn't aged. Right, and his Jillian sex Anderson looks great, so... She's crazy, though. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the effect of working on all these series for so many years. I'm just saying, when you start sobbing and demand people don't look at you in your airplane cabin and huddle under a blanket for the duration of the flight, she just needed a safe space. Yeah, well, hopefully we can all find a safe <laughs> space that these X-Files things suck. It might trigger me. Who knows? Yeah, well, I mean, look, we we can't get any worse than where it was left off because the first X-Files movie that they made yeah. <laughs> was really bad. I mean, it was just yes. dumb. And it, then the one they made uh, seven years ago, the oh, I think it was called X-Files, I Want to Believe, mm-hmm. had no relation to the mythology or anything like sci-fi related really whatsoever. Yeah. And that was kind of bad too. I didn't, I, it just seemed like they really didn't relate to each other as characters anymore in that movie. So it was, it was just a strange movie and I hope they get their mojo back doing this limited mini series. Yeah. I think that a mini series might be, cause I don't, have you seen, um, 
True Detective. I've seen a little bit of it. Yeah, that was a really strong kind of quasi, I don't want to say quasi paranormal, but sort of in the vein of the X-Files, like all of the weird shit happening surrounding, you know, the death ritual and everything that was pulled off really well with the the team of two investigators trying to figure it out. I got to check the rest of that out then, because I've only seen one episode, Mm -hmm. but apparently I've got to make some space in my calendar. Yeah, it's really good, and I think that uh, some sort of X-Files project kind of in that contained little short run would be a lot better than maybe letting a network get in there and say, you know, oh, we're going to reimagine the X-Files, guys. It's going to be Mulder and Scully, you know, what, 20 years later here. They're still at the FBI in the X-Files division. No, if they totally did a remake of the series or a reimagining, it'd be like, oh, Mulder and Scully are high school kids and they have to solve uh, oh, no, Mulder mysteries. And, Mulder and Scully's children now work for the <laughs> FBI, yeah. right? Okay. That's what it would right. be. And yeah, one of them is partially an alien, so they have psychic powers and use those to investigate everything. By the way, if anybody ends up making this, you know, we're going to call a copyright on that right here. Yep. Yeah, yep. we're claiming it. But yeah. Anyway, we hope the X Files is good. I'll certainly be watching it when it comes out on Netflix or whatever. Uh, yeah. Another news item here that will get our blood boiling, or at least get it simmering a bit. No, is, no, no. As one of my law school professors always said, your blood should be boiling right now. So, well, it may very well be after we'll I read see. this. Writer Simon Pegg he promises that Star Trek Three will embrace the spirit of the TV series. What do we think? Is he telling the truth or no? Which TV series, I guess, would be the question. I think the original series. Um, you know, I think that's what Simon Pegg is going to say, and that's what Simon Pegg's going to put in his draft, and that's going to be his input. But based on what I know about the studio system and the, the film editing process and the production process, whatever Simon Pegg turns in may not necessarily be the shooting script. And it almost certainly won't be the editing tone they choose to use. I agree. I agree. I think that somehow it's going to get messed up in the the process, the mm-hmm. creative process. And I don't buy it at all, not especially after Star Trek Into Darkness, which was a huge clusterfuck, and it was right. retarded. I have to kind of feel bad for Simon Pegg because he's obviously somebody with a, a passion for sci-fi. That's obvious about him. Right. But I don't think despite his best efforts, even if the whole cast got together and said we want to do it this way, I will guarantee you that to come back and say, guess what? Yeah, so they're not fooling me. But I I think that Simon Peggy's probably well-meaning, but they're not fooling me, okay? Star Trek Into Darkness was really, really bad, and they tried to sell it as some kind of edgy... Uh, question your ethics sci-fi film mm-hmm. with lots of uh deep thought about contemporary issues and crap like that and yeah it turned out to be none of that i mean i remember these things where they were doing interviews at, at comic cons and stuff saying like oh yeah this deals with the legality of drone strikes and shit like there's that there's a very 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 thin connection to drone strikes in there than those long-range missiles yeah which Basically, to me, meant that we had this really dumb plot point in there, and now we're we just happen to luck out, and there's a contemporary issue uh, that's come up that is tangentially related to the shitty thing we wrote into our movie script, and now we're going to try to use that to sell you mm-hmm. our our movie. Yeah, uh, and it didn't work because it no. was still bad. And then Star yeah. Trek, JJ's first outing, 
again, a little better um, coherent story for most of it. Most of it, yeah. Yeah, most of it, but still not Star Trek at all. Um, just a popcorn movie with Star Trek pasted on top of it. I mean, if it's if Simon Pegg is serious about Star Trek Three following the spirit of the series, I expect a movie more like Wrath of Khan mm-hmm. than J.J.'s Star Trek. Right. Okay? That would have been really cool, but they already did Wrath of Khan. It was called Star Trek Into Darkness. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Unless they're going to let Khan escape from wherever he's locked up at the end. Nah, he's on ice now. Yeah, he's fucked, so that door is closed, unfortunately. But I, I take your point. Hopefully they're going to find some way to make it relevant, but I don't know. I mean, Star Trek has gone from... I would say that the original series had some really powerful social stuff going on behind it. it even the obvious shit, like the people who are half black, half white versus half white, half black in their face. Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of be retarded not to get that, but at the time, that was a really big social issue. I mean, even having a Russian guy and a black woman on the bridge working with everybody else, that was still kind of crazy. Right. And the next generation explored I guess some more concepts like uh, assisted suicide, um, homosexuality, gender norms, all that stuff. And that's kind of gone from that stuff, the really heavy social commentary, which is what a lot of classic sci-fi was. Pew, 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 pew. Yeah, to how many laser guns can we pack into the scene, get that girl's tits out, and make sure there are at least five destroyed starships every half an hour. Fire everything. It, I mean, that made sense in the context of the movie, but it was just such a fucking retarded idea that a mining ship would have all... Why does a mining ship need all those guns? Let's start yeah. with that question. I thought that was a little weird, too. Like maybe, it, they, maybe they upgraded it during like the, the 25 years that they were waiting for Spock, but then again, like they'd only have access to the technology of that time, so uh, they really wouldn't be any better than the ships they were fighting, right? So, yeah, yeah, I know that's a minor thing, but uh, they, I think they fucked themselves really because yeah. they went for the short-term cash in 2009 and 2013. They say, "Oh, we're gonna turn it into like an action movie." Like JJ clearly never liked Star Trek as much as he liked Star Wars, and he tried to turn Star Trek into Star Wars, but with none of the heart of Star Wars. It's just all big one generic action movie with Star Trek again pasted on top of it. And so I, I think they really screwed themselves because now they've convinced the audiences that Star Trek is like basically, uh, you know, dumb popcorn fare, right? And now if they go back and try to make a Star Trek movie with real gravitas and serious tone, uh, people aren't going to buy it because they're going to walk into the theater and they're going to say, oh, this is boring. It's boring. Why isn't Spock shooting someone? Right. Not enough car chases or explosions or anything. So, you know, I I think they built themselves this really steep hill to climb. Credit to J.J. Abrams and company for forcing a car chase into Star Trek. Yeah, well. That was amazing that they actually worked that into the Wrath of Khan there. Yeah. I mean, what is the the closest thing to a car chase that we got in the original run of movies? Probably uh, the hospital chase yeah. in Star Trek Four. Yeah. <laughs> that's but as that's close an awesome to get scene. to a car chase. The hospital chase is awesome. You can't can't ever deny that. Oh yeah. Perfectly paced. But yeah, far cry from punching somebody in the face on the hover truck going through San Francisco. So I think people know how we feel about that now. And Simon yeah. Pegg, if you're listening. I hope you're going to do a good job. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, fight for your ideas. Make sure they're heard. Don't back down on the spirit of Star Trek. And 
I hope you do it, but the odds are against you. Yes, Simon Pegg, I know you've been on Top Gear, so take a leaf from Jeremy Clarkson's book, Punch a Producer, if they're not going to go with it. Yeah, there you go. Just drill him right in the (laughs) face. Okay, so another news item that I thought was pretty interesting and very future-oriented is uh, William Gibson. So he was actually at a TED conference, I think, a a little while ago, and this this news is from the end of last week. Mm -hmm. And he was actually trying out... uh, virtual reality systems, some of the new systems that are being uh, tested right now that are going to perhaps come to market in the next year, two years. So he actually tried out the uh, Samsung Gear VR. Mm -hmm. Samsung's version, or I guess Samsung's similar product to the Oculus Rift, etc. Right. Uh, And, you know, I apologize. I don't don't know if this one is is Samsung or Sony, because Sony has Project Morpheus. Sony has Project Morpheus. Facebook has the Oculus. Uh, there's a, another one f- from Samsung, I believe. Then there's Google's cardboard box one they made. Right. And uh, I'm sure there's one in Apple's Skunk Works somewhere. And then uh, Valve is supposedly releasing theirs. Valve's was set up at a conference pretty recently. Right. And then Microsoft has, uh, they debuted their HoloLens a right. few months ago, which was incredible just from the looks of it. Uh but Mr. Gibson, who the author, many of you will know, of Neuromancer and many other seminal works of sci-fi in the 80s and 90s, and he continues to write to this day. I think he actually just had a book come out, so check it out if you haven't. Uh, he tried out the Gear VR, and his comments after doing it were, they did it. So I'm not sure how to take that. Uh, he seemed genuinely excited from the account that I read, which is really cool since this guy pretty much theorized uh, a future of virtual reality systems, and he's impressed by what they're mm-hmm. doing. So that's really cool to me, and it just makes me more excited about the potential of these things. I don't think that we're going to have a full-fledged, completely immersive VR world in two years, but... I think that these products will do some really cool things, at least in the gaming space, maybe for television, uh, specialty things. What Gibson watched during uh, this uh, TED event was he watched a few advertisements that had been made specially for VR, and then he watched a short piece uh, that some people put together, a five-minute VR short, and he was very impressed. So I, I, I think this bodes well for virtual reality. Yeah, I think virtual reality is going to enhance maybe not the sci-fi experience for going to a theater or something, although I suppose that they could do that for at-home entertainment, but I think it's really going to enhance the, the gaming property space, especially if you took something like a, a relatively simple concept now like Flight Simulator, but you remade X-Wing or something, and now you could look around the cockpit and you had to look over your shoulder and up to see the TIE fighter behind you. It opens a whole new dimension for immersiveness in gaming. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the the near-term potential for this is clearly in gaming, just because games are already in a 3D virtual space, and this just is kind of like a port, Mm -hmm. or designing something halfway so that it can be used in a VR setting. So it's all digital, in other words. I mean, everything's 3D already, so it's just a, a different, it's a glorified monitor, but I think once technology like the HoloLens gets smaller and less obtrusive, because right now it does look fairly conspicuous, right? gets down to something that you could even maybe put like in a regular pair of glasses. I think that enhance, that opens up a lot of uh, commercial prospects. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like smart spaces on buildings that would just have, you know, personalized whatever, or you could have you know, something that you could be watching the game or keeping track of a stock ticker while you're on the train. As a, you know, something you could do on your smartphone now, but putting that unobtrusively into your vision, or even you know, consumer technology that's supposed to help enhance your quality of life, helping you drive. You know, pointing out the turn is up here, make the left there. Oh yeah, navigation via mm-hmm. your uh, visual device. Yeah, instead of looking down at the map or having the car kind of try and tell you like the less than three hundred feet, it will just say, "Look, that's you know, Euclid. You make a left here." I think that's a, certainly a possibility in the near term. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see if it it gets traction and catches on because uh, you know for those of you who have a long memory out there, you know, VR has kind of come and gone like four or five times now. And beginning the virtual in, boy, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all remember that. And uh, I think the first time they really tried to do something with VR was like in the late seventies, early eighties, where you know each pixel was like a huge polygon size of your hand that you were looking at. And it flamed out then for obvious reasons because it was just too obtrusive. And yeah. I think they've tried to do it a, a couple more times since then in various ways, whether it's, uh, you know, like a, a stereoscopic interface or whatnot. And it just hasn't caught on. So we'll see if this catches on because looking at these pictures right now, uh, I'm looking at uh, William Gibson with the headset on. I cannot see people using those in public. I don't think that that would be something people would use in public at all. This is like something for the privacy of your own home or in the workplace if you're doing design work right now. So I agree with you, Clark. I think that the next two to five years, it's probably going to be mostly in the gaming gaming space, shall we say, and probably some stuff with TV and movies, but I really think it's like a 10-year journey to get to that point where it's small enough and inconspicuous enough that it can be built like modular modularly into you know a regular pair of glasses you would pick up from lens crafters or something like that yeah i think that it's i agree with both you and myself i guess previously from before that it's gaming first maybe some industrial stuff i could see this would be a, a really interesting application for some of the not straight up virtual reality but um enhanced reality right applications for these things because Microsoft's HoloLens lets you see out, obviously, and so does um, whatever Steam's project or Valve's project is going to be called. It has external cameras that let you see through, kind of. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of interesting industrial applications there, especially for uh, mechanical or something like a 3D schematic of something you're assembling or disassembling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And it seems like the companies now, they have the benefit of hindsight, so they're learning the lessons of Google Glass. Mm-hmm, because yeah. as we all know now, Google Glass failed pretty spectacularly. Don't be a glass hole. Right. <laughs> Definitely. And it did not catch on because nobody wants to walk around wearing a face computer. And so I think they're very correctly positioning this as something that's only applicable in certain settings because of the technology restrictions. So mm-hmm. my conclusion, I, I really like this. It's cool. Uh, great to see William Gibson, who's like a sci-fi patriarch involved in this and giving it the thumbs up because the future is pretty cool the future is now yeah and speaking of now 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 i have one last news item that probably fits into the the main topic for today what's that and that's disney has released uh a timeline 
of how the new Star Wars Expanded Universe books are going to fit into the chronology of the films. Wow. So I'm looking at this infographic right now, and we've got the six films here plus The Force Awakens at the very bottom, and we don't know what's going to happen there, obviously. And we've got a couple other things in here, like TV shows, like uh, After Attack of the Clones. We've obviously got the Clone Wars TV series, which, uh, my opinion, started out pretty promising, but quickly uh, went off the rails in terms of the multi-pronged stories that just got really complicated. And uh, I think they made it go on for far longer than it should have. Yeah, I think that the Clone Wars also suffered a little bit because... It didn't have so much of like the fish out of water. There's no protagonist who is not already fully briefed on what's going on. Right. And it, you know, of course, the Clone Wars movie was god awful. Yeah, it didn't start from a strong place originally, but even in the Clone Wars movie, there was still some explanation of like the reasoning behind why they're doing what they're doing, even it was, you know, self serving and cursory. But from what I saw on the show, it was. Everybody sort of knew what they were doing, so you as the audience member didn't really have a context for any of these weird branching-off stories, how they fit into the bigger picture. Yeah, that's... I agree with that assessment, and we also have Star Wars Rebels, which is the new animated series that Disney released in the fall, and actually just wrapped up its first season a few weeks ago, and that takes place between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, so that 20-year span between the two movies. And I think Rebels takes place towards the latter part of that 20-year span. I've watched a little bit of it, and I think it's a really good show. Uh, I totally understand that it's a kid's show and it's targeted towards them. Still, I think it's a good show. The story's got actually really good elements in it, mature elements, challenging, I guess, some some kids who might be watching it. and. The characters are pretty good. I, I like them, and actually it has some crossover with the Clone Wars in terms of the characters, and uh, people found that out at the end of the season, that the Ashoka Tano uh, from the Clone Wars actually uh, is still around, and she's working with the Rebel Alliance. Now, who is that for people who have not seen the so, show? Ashoka was Anakin Skywalker's Padawan learner during the Clone Wars. Because he's Master Skywalker, right? right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Even though he does not hold the rank of master, remember he was ultra pissed about that. Yes, he was very petulant. Yeah, uh, but anyway, yeah, she was his Padawan. Uh, she actually ended up being expelled from the Jedi Order at the end of the Clone War series, and it was kind of left up in the air what happened to her. And so, at the end of Rebels, uh, we find out that I won't ruin it all if you haven't seen it, but she's still alive and she's working for the good guys still. And the good guys in this case are the Alliance to Restore the Republic? Right, yeah, one of the rebel cells, the early rebel cells. Oh, so this is pre-Mon Mothma and General Bell Eblis getting together? No, it's, I mean, I think the way they've set it up is that they are involved in it, but each rebel cell is its own kind of self-contained unit. Oh, so there's the, the cells, not like the faction, they're actually right. like little, okay, yeah. gotcha. I haven't seen the show. Right, and then we've also got some other books in here. So the new books that have been released or will be released very soon that tie into like the new Expanded Universe uh, chronology that Disney is building up. So we've got, during the Clone Wars, we have Dark Disciple. And so apparently that focuses a lot on Count Dooku, which, okay, 
I think we've had this conversation before. Count Dooku, really not the most compelling villain. Uh, not very no. threatening, but uh, Christopher Lee, cool guy, still. Very cool. And he did a good job of what he was given, but I think the character is just kind of like, I don't know, generic evil guy. We're going to call him Count because that sounds evil. Right. Yeah. And then we've got it. immediately after Revenge of the Sith, so right after Darth Vader becomes Darth Vader. Oh, wait, hold on a second. I'd like to ask a question about Dark Disciple here. Sure. It says in the description, and I'll put this in the notes for you guys, you can look it up and see this too, that Count Dooku is the bad guy and the Jedi Council doesn't like him, so they're going to try and hunt him down. But the genius plan they get to do this is like the Reese's peanut butter, you got chocolate on my peanut butter kind of thing. They're going to put a Jedi and a Sith together, which is deeply confusing to me because isn't Count Dooku a Sith himself? So how are they going to find a Sith apprentice? I don't know. It doesn't seem... If I were the master of the Sith, I wouldn't be sending an apprentice to, you know, work with the other guys to kill my little second-in-command. Ooh, I guess you have to read the book to find out what the motivation is. I'm, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to spend money on the book. <laughs> it just seems like a really dumb plan, but... Well, I, you might want to read Lords of the Sith. Oh yeah? Why is that? So the description is, When the Emperor and his notorious apprentice Darth Vader find themselves stranded in the middle of insurgent action on an inhospitable planet, they must rely on each other, the Force, and their own ruthlessness to prevail. So it sounds a little cool. I mean, it's so you actually get to see the Emperor in action here with Darth Vader. So probably some backstory on their relationship as master and apprentice. Uh, probably get to see them, you know, fuck a lot of people up, kill a lot of people with lightsabers. Um, Maybe fuck each other. This does read a little Brokeback Mountainy. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> the way it starts out. I'm not. I'm not going to say anything. They're stuck on an inhospitable planet. They must rely on each other, the Force, and their own ruthlessness to prevail. I'm just putting that out there. Maybe Ang Lee will take the film version well, of this. We know Darth Vader couldn't quit the Emperor anyway, because he's with him for 20 years. Yeah, somebody ought to refilm that. That would have been a good Oscars parody. <laughs> and then we got another book that's, I think it's a little closer to, uh, it's probably in the middle of new between New Hope and Revenge of the Sith. Uh, it's called Tarkin. I'm guessing that's all about Grand Moff Tarkin and how he came to be Grand Moff Tarkin and the building of the Death Star. Got another book called New Dawn, and it seems like another book focused on the Emperor. And yeah, I don't know about that one. No, I'm not looking forward to any of these, to be honest with you. Yeah, and then we've got... After A New Hope, we've got Heir to the Jedi and Battlefront, which Heir to the Jedi and Battlefront are described as a thrilling new adventure set between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Well, there's already one of those. It's called Shadows, Shadows of, the of the Empire. Empire. Please don't fuck with it because it's great. Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Well, I don't see why you got to mess with perfection. Yeah, but that has, you know non-canon stuff in it now. Stuff about legends that never happened. God damn it. Yep. So with that said, we're going to talk about the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which many of you now know is called the... It's Legends, so it's not officially canon anymore, but still, 
The Star Wars Expanded Universe is huge. It's something that we grew up reading a whole bunch of that many of you guys probably did too. And I think it's still worth talking about, despite it being not canon and being disavowed by Disney, because it's still very influential on Star Wars fans. And even on the movies themselves, some things that have been in the Expanded Universe have kind of done the full circle and actually influenced the movies too. So with that said, I'll let you take it, Clark. What's what's your best expanded universe property that something that you just can't live without? Hmm, that's actually difficult. Um, it really is because I have you know four or five that I would rate as the absolute tip top. But I I think that talk if, about all of them. Talk about all of them. Okay, well yeah, definitely sure. the number one I would put up there would be the uh, heir to the empire trilogy, the yeah, story of uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, and the resolution with him, as well as the uh, visions of the future, the duology right. that follows up on the Thrawn trilogy. I think that's an excellent capper to the end of the the Star Wars expanded universe, I guess, 20, 30 year storyline they set up there. Right. So I think that was the last set of EU novels before they did the whole New Jedi Order yes. storyline. Which quickly went from interesting to really fucking confusing down to like you know fan fiction forum level yeah writing yeah yeah we got so crazy fucked up so fast spiraled out of control yeah it's just like one of those tie fighters in uh the asteroid field and empire it just winged itself and spun out of control blew up yeah. tragic so what's your favorite that you can't live without i'm gonna go with shadows of the empire just because I've always loved it. I thought it was a really good book. And at the time, there hadn't been any Star Wars Expanded Universe properties that were set during the Galactic Civil War where the Emperor and Darth Vader were actually characters that you got to read about and see in action. Most of the Expanded Universe books to that point, I think Shadows of the Empire came out in 1996, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And so just before that were the Thrawn trilogy books. So up to the shadow up to the point that we got Shadows of the Empire, we hadn't really had anything uh that happened during the Galactic Civil War with the Darth Vader and the Emperor being alive. No. So we all we just saw stuff afterwards and I thought it was always really cool that we got a story with the two of them alive and they were major characters. It had a great graphic novel series that went with it, which I still have, and I think it's really well done. And the video game was really cool, still fun to play to this day. For N64. Right. And they even had, uh, they had a whole line of action figures with the Power of the Force collection based on Shadows of the Empire characters. Uh, Dash Rendar is a cool character. Did Love. they have Lebo? Was he a... Yeah, you could buy you Lebo. Could buy. Okay, yeah, I liked Lebo. Yeah. And you could get the Outrider, too, actually, as a vehicle. Yeah, Lebo was uh, Dash Render's droid co-pilot pal. Mm -hmm. He was a better version of C-3PO, I guess. Yeah, he actually did stuff. He did stuff. He didn't just wave his arms and complain. Yeah, Shadows of the Empire, I think that's, I think that's the best one to me. Uh, honorable mention for, for best one, I have to say the, the Lando Calrissian Adventures. Oh, that's a classic I in its own those. right, though. <laughs> that's awesome. Lando's like a dapper gentleman calling people old, old bean and stuff and making friends with robots. Sentient robots. Oh, Vuffy Ra. Yeah. 
and making and <laughs> it looks like, like a fucking vacuum cleaner. Yeah, pl- like gambling, playing for crystals in the star cave of Thon Boko with gigantic space creatures. Yeah, and he has to take on the evil force sorcerer guy, um, Roker Gepta. Yeah, who the turns sorcerer out guy. turns out to be a slug hiding in a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, those were like three really <laughs> enjoyable books. I like those. Well, on that uh, same point, the the same. I guess the same Delray series, though, the Han Solo Adventures. Yeah. Because there's the Han Solo Adventures, and then there's the Han Solo The Origin Trilogy, which I would also recommend. Right. The Origin Trilogy is newer than the Adventures. The Adventures are uh, Han Solo at Star's End. Right, he's, like, hanging out in the corporate sector. Yeah, and then the trilogy is, like, Han Solo's origin story, or I guess the legendary origin story of how he came to... Actually, it takes him right up to the bar before he meets Obi-Wan and Luke at the end of the third book, but it has references, like, interstitial references to the corporate sector time, like, when the original was, like, 1970s books. Yeah. Because I think that the Lando Calrissian adventures and the Han Solo, the original Han Solo adventures were in the 70s, the first experiment with licensing novels, which quickly ended. Right. The one, the really the oldest one that I remember was uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah. And that was okay. I mean, it wasn't anything spectacular, but it was. I still have a copy, whatever that means. I mean, there's some stuff in there that's not the greatest, but it's... I mean, I'm the lowest point for me, I guess, if we're going to have to put this on some sort of spectrum, is the the Carillion trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember With that. Centerpoint Station being a gigantic right. weapon, which apparently was continued further into the Jedi Order books that I never read. So there, wait, there, if I recall this, there's the Corellian trilogy, and then there's, isn't there another trilogy after that about like the, something like the Black Fleet Crisis or something? Yes, yeah, the Black Fleet Crisis is, is after that, I believe. Right. I don't, uh, I didn't read those, as you can probably tell. I haven't read all of the Expanded Universe stuff, but I've read quite a bit of it. I have to say, though, that I think the new Jedi Order stuff is the the, the low point for the Expanded Universe. Just, it was, I, I don't know, it's like, you got a whole new like set of aliens coming from outside the galaxy who can't be beaten, apparently, and they fuck up the entire galaxy, pretty much. And then they just went off the rails. Like, Leia and Han's son, like, falls to the dark side or some shit like that and becomes a Sith. And uh, Doesn't the other one die? Yeah, I, I mean... It's, and then Chewbacca dies? Right, Chewbacca dies, and it, it just became really stupid. I think that... Wasn't that also that... Um... What are those guys called? The Yu Yuzong? Yeah, Yuzon Vong or something. Using a bong, whatever yeah. they're called. The um the Yuzon Bongs are from outside the galaxy, like Grant said, and they're kind of like the Independence Day creatures. They just roam around and fuck shit up. But I think, and I this is my memory relying on here, that they the authors or whoever the game master whoever's in charge of the overall canon at that point decided that it would be like the way to explain the Yuzon Vong and everything was that the Emperor took power and sent Admiral Thrawn out into the unknown regions because he was meditating one day and found out that the other galaxy had the Yuzon Vong people in it, and they were really mad and they were going to come fuck up their galaxy. So, 
it's like the whole thing, the whole Star Wars saga was really just in service of setting up the galaxy to defend against the evil creatures from outside the galaxy, which... I hate when they yeah, do that. it's a fucking weak, weak, weak-ass way to end that. I know, I hate that when they do that in any franchise. Like, they go back and retcon it and say, like, no, no, they they did all they did all this stuff because there's some evil guy, like, even worse than everything you've ever seen. They they knew he was coming all along. They've done that in so many franchises, like, <laughs> and it never works. No. It's just a letdown every no. time. I don't have a problem with the new, like a new power or whatever being super evil, but then to say it was like it was my plan all along, that's kind of like the I was only pretending to be retarded meme. Like, no, you just came off retarded 100%. And we or, were, yeah, or like the new, uh, the new thing that everybody does in their movies, the villain has to allow himself to be captured. Well, it's a part of his plan. Right. Yeah. It's that shit. Like, the, it was my plan all along. No. I mean, the Emperor's a crafty dude, but I mean, if you think about it, that's just, they took the truce at Bakura plot, and they made the aliens not weird reptiles. They made them actually threatening. Right, and actually, that's, that's a good point. Truce at Bakura, that's, that's one that I never liked. Yeah. Because it was supposedly took place, it started a day after they blew up the Death Star at Endor. Yes. And I hated that book because they teased us with, okay, it takes place a day after they destroyed the Death Star at Endor, and it doesn't focus on any of that. It doesn't focus on the aftermath of that battle at all, like right. or the consequences to Luke and Leia for you know Darth Vader and the Emperor being dead. It's just like, oh no, there's these lizard guys who are trying to like steal our energy and the, stuff. The very beginning of the novel is that Luke Skywalker is trying to activate a, a probe or something that shows up. For no reason, I guess that it was, there's an Imperial colony under attack by lizard creatures, and they send a probe, I guess they knew that everybody was at Endor, so they send a probe to the fleet saying, we need help, and Luke Skywalker figures out what the probe is trying to tell them, and they go check it out. Right. Oh yeah, it was a probe that was, uh, it was destined, um, it was supposed to come to the Death Star to report to the Emperor, right? Yeah, to tell him that right. things were going poorly. Yeah. And then they have to go... The rebels have to go there, and the Empire is still in control of the planet, but the Imperial guy running the planet's actually a nice enough guy, and they're fighting these aliens who use some kind of machine to take people's souls and make them power robots. Yeah. Yeah, it was just some fucked up weird shit going on in there. But yeah. I will still read that before I will read the Corellian trilogy. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, the Star Wars Expanded Universe stuff, the, I think the things that I've been exposed to the most in there and therefore think are the best are really the short story collections. Yeah. I think that those were just generally the best ones. I mean, I think the first one that I ever read was Tales of the Bounty Hunters. Mm -hmm. So like Tales of the Bounty Hunters, uh, Tales from Jabba's Palace, Tales from the Empire, Tales from the New Republic. Uh, Tales I, from the Cantina. Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina, of course, missing that one. Actually, I think that was the first one I read because that was the first one that actually that came out, I think. Yeah. And I really liked those because what they were was were a collection of short stories and in many cases uh, novellas. And they really gave you the backstory of a lot of characters that were just set pieces in the movies, essentially. So a lot of the guys at the bar, the Moss Eisley Cantina thing, you actually 
see the backstory of all these guys at the bar that you just saw for like a couple seconds in the movie. And I thought that was really cool because they used those guys and tied them into the wider Star Wars mythology and the universe. And they were well-written, interesting, and they had some good writers too, like Kevin J. Anderson. He was writing a lot of those back then. And they were, I mean, I thought those were the best ones to me. Those are something that you could really get into as a fan. I liked all of those as well. The only one I really never really understood was the Zuckus and Forlom one. Oh, the where they're like the bounty hunter team? Yeah, I liked that up until the end where Forlom decides he's going to go... He's a droid, by the way. He decides he's going to go learn the ways of the Force and has a vision of himself studying with Luke Skywalker. I had to put the book down to think about that after I read it. Yeah. Because that made no fucking sense. Up. Yeah. But other than that little minor editing flop that the editor didn't send that back with a big what-the-fuck note on it, yeah, Good. high quality stuff. I actually, I think my favorite bounty hunter story in that collection is definitely the IG eighty eight story. Oh, the story of how he comes to be in his like four or three or four brothers. Uh, yeah, so he like the story. He essentially duplicates himself a bunch of times, and then he kind of maneuvers himself into being uploaded into the the computer core of the second Death Star. So he's actually in control of the second Death Star during the Battle of Endor, and he's like correcting the targeting flaws and stuff from you know the super laser and things like that and you get to see everything from his point of view and he at one point i like did he even fucks with the emperor in his throne room like shuts the door on him and stuff and it was it was just a good story i mean uh it was it was kind of well written and 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 it had a lot of humor as and being about a droid that's kind of unexpected and then and then you have the boba fett story too in there which you know details how he escaped from the sarlacc which then led to another trilogy of great books the, that I think we talked about before on here. Yeah. Yeah, Hard Merchandise. That's the first one in there. Right, uh, the K.W. Jeter trilogy. Yeah. But on uh, IG-88, I like the part where he tries to close the doors on the Emperor, like in the I'm not touching you kind of way, just to annoy him. And then yeah. the Emperor uses the Force to open them, like, I'm going to fuck you up. So that was a nice, interesting thing that a droid can troll the Emperor like that. Yeah, and uh, but how, I'm trying to remember how do his his copies die? One of them gets blown up by Boba Fett. Another one gets destroyed on Cloud City, and another one dies in the Death Star. Obviously, there's I think there were four of them in total. I can't remember how the the fourth one ends up getting killed though. Yeah, it's been so long since I read the story, yeah. but it stuck with me because it was so good. Yeah, it's a good. Oh, you can tell it's a good story because we're both able to recall some pretty salient details from it. Yeah, and if we're talking about uh, also stories in the expanded universe that that were but probably shouldn't have been uh i'm gonna say the graphic novels the dark empire trilogy so that's dark empire dark empire 2 and empire's end the reborn emperor yeah that was uh i mean that i'm actually glad that that no longer exists because of the legends thing and disney erasing it because that was kind of a really dumb storyline the emperor Return for those of you who haven't read it, the Emperor, after he's killed by being thrown into the Death Star's reactor, leaves in spirit form, flies through hyperspace as a spirit, I guess. Yeah. Finds his way to a planet deep in the center of the galaxy where there's been a secret Imperial military base forever. Goes into a clone body he just happened to have ready and rolling just in case he got killed. Right, and then all of his clone bodies are decaying because he's so full of evil energy oh, and it right. decays him so like that's you know right. at that point we didn't know that 
he looked fucked up because he got the, his own lightning reflected back at him by Mace Windu. And so I guess they were trying to explain why he looks so decrepit. And it's, oh, because his body's rotting because of all the dark side energy, which I thought was a really dumb explanation for that. I thought he was just old, like really old in the movies. That was the why he looked really decrepit. Yeah, I thought he just looked fucked up because he was old and, you know, he was, I guess for visual reasons, he just looked kind of creepy as the evil creepy guy. but. Not that the dark side was rotting him like an apple. Yeah, and there were cool p- plot elements of that story. Like, uh, we see the the first appearance of uh, the Eclipse Super Star Destroyer, which is apparently so big that it, like, overshadows a planet. And I thought it was a cool um, artwork design when you actually look at the graphic novel and see the artwork that they did. It looks really cool, but... Uh, it's kind of unrealistic as a concept and like it's like oh the thing has a super laser like the Death Star and stuff and it, it just seemed like they were trying to cram too much no. into one story and trying to like oh the Emperor and then he had this this weird thing that shot projectiles at planets called the Galaxy Gun which was absolutely retarded yeah I and think... then he ends up blowing up his own uh, planet with it right, I, was gonna say, I, think, <laughs> I think the low point was that the Emperor builds two super weapons and is tricked into destroying them both. Yeah. Yeah, just... Dark Empire 1, kind of interesting because it picks up right after the Thrawn trilogy ended and kind of gives you a, a backstory of what happened immediately after that. So like, there's an invasion of Coruscant by Imperial forces and nobody knows why that happened. Uh, and then Luke Skywalker finds out it's the Emperor and he falls to the dark side trying to figure out how he can defeat the emperor from inside so to speak it was part of his plan to be captured right and, and then the dark he, side yeah he goes i mean they get luke back and everything works out in the end the emperor he like creates a force storm or something like that and tries to blow up the new republic's like headquarters and it turns back on him and he gets eaten by it himself and along with his big ship yeah so he's a dumbass and then and then he comes back in uh the next uh, part of it, Dark Empire 2, and he, he has a new giant ship, again. And he's ready yeah, still. He's got a few more of those laying around, I bet. Right, and Dark Empire 2 was just really bad, too. It was it was actually really boring. Because you don't actually see much of the, the Palpatine storyline in that. And then we have Empire Zen, which was kind of an abbreviated epilogue to those two, where he actually tries to transfer his soul into, like, Han and Leia's kid or something, so he can, like, live forever in this like force sensitive child again doesn't go his way yeah it was stupid and and the worst part so they brought the emperor back to life which was stupid in the first place but then he ultimately dies because he gets shot in the back by han solo (laughs) which is kind of funny it is but it's also doing a huge disservice to the character especially as i recall the way they drew that was kind of in the same indiana jones pose when he shoots the guy with the sword in the market yeah yeah Yeah, just a funny thing I guess the artist did who when he was drawing that. Yeah, so they should have never made that. No. I mean, that was something I think they were really desperately grasping at shit to to make stories in the expanded universe. One that I really did like in graphic novel form was Crimson Empire. Did you ever read that? It sounds familiar, but I'm not recalling what it's about. Yeah, so it's about 
two members of the Emperor's Royal Guards. Oh, okay, yeah. The Okay, yeah, Right, yeah. and it kind of actually relates to Dark Empire, some of the events. So, like, one of the Emperor's Royal Guards sabotages his clones. It's revealed that he did that in order to get rid of the Emperor and take over a bunch of territory himself. And then the hero of the story is another Royal Guard who's fanatically loyal and makes it his mission that he's going to kill this traitor guy. Um, I think the traitor is Karnor Jax. And the hero guy is Kirkanos. And so the whole story is kind of like a grudge match between them. I thought that it was it was pretty cool. And the artwork is great. Yeah, I can't say I, I read a, a great amount of the dark or dark a great amount of the graphic novels outside of like um I think I, I read the Rogue Squadron comics, but they weren't really graphic novels per se. They were comic versions of the novels. Yeah, I actually think the best graphic novels were the ones that took place in the distant past, like the Tales of the Jedi stuff, so about the Sith War with, with Exar Kun and uh, what his name was, uh, Ula, Ula Quadroma. Yeah. yeah, I thought those were really good because they explain how those guys became Sith Lords and how they fought against uh, the Republic forces at the time. Those were cool stories. Yeah. I think there's a lot of... I don't know, I mean, I... I like the Knights of the Old Republic games. I think that's a very interesting setting. I like the comics that are around that and the graphic novels, like you had said, that deal with the with the whatever XR Kun's particular war he started was called. Yeah. Those are very interesting, I guess, from a setting perspective, because it's still Star Wars, but it's not the Star Wars you know or the Star Wars you're particularly familiar with. But then there are also some... I don't know, there are some books that were in, I guess, the modern quote-unquote star wars era that i thought were also really interesting like dark empire's handling of super weapons was retarded but i like the um the jedi academy trilogy oh yeah yeah with the original explanation for the death stars being was the the maw installation the secret imperial research facility centered in like a cluster in the little gravity neutral area between a bunch of black holes so nobody else could get in there and look around that was really cool. I thought the Sun Crusher was the logical extension of the Death Star, go from destroying planets to blowing up suns, you know, wiping out solar systems. Yeah, and that was a pretty cool implementation of that wep- super weapon idea that yeah. the Empire like was constantly going after these wonder weapon things. And it's very it was also it was a, a good, I guess, exploration of bureaucracy because I think the end of it is that all the scientists from the Empire scientists get together on the Death Star prototype and the little tiny part of it that's actually, you know, habitable because most was just like a big giant frame. And they're debating by committee and going through like the 500 page manual on the rule book on how to decide like what ship to target. They're having an actual committee meeting on what ship to a target first. Yeah, it didn't work out well for them. It didn't work out very well for them. But I think the Sun Crusher was a great idea. And it shows up, uh, I think it gets destroyed at the end, right? Yeah. But this, it's, I mean, uh, what's, shit, is it Kevin J. Anderson who wrote a lot of those books? Yeah, I think he, he wrote all three of the Jedi Academy trilogy. And then uh, Michael Stackpole was responsible for a lot of the books, too. And he borrowed the Sun Crusher, I think, for um, I, Jedi. Oh, yeah, with... Um, Corrin Horn. Right, he was a X-Wing pilot and figures right. out he can become a Jedi. Right. And the end of that, I think, is he, Corrin Horn, like, mind tricks... The person, the the Imperial, I guess, uh, force that he's fighting, thinking like, oh, the Sun Crusher wasn't really destroyed. You know, he gives them like the false vision that the Sun Crusher's been deployed and it's going to just like fly through their ship and destroy it because it actually happens, I think, when 
Han Solo's escaping the Maw installation, right? They drive it through one of the ships. Yeah. Because the, the conceit of the Sun Crusher is that it's made of the same stuff, I guess, as the Star's End prison. It's one gigantic molecular bond, so it can't be broken. There's no... It isn't made of constituent parts. It's basically one singular uh, atomic thing. So the armor is nearly impregnable. So I thought that was a, a, the proper approach to a super weapon versus the, the giant gun that shoots missiles and center point station turns out to be a giant laser gun that runs off gravity. Oh, and don't forget the Death Star prototype thing that the, the hut builds. Well, I actually the, like Dark, Dark Saber. Saber. I think Dark Saber's kind of funny. Is it's a hut who steals the Death Star plans and tries to build like just the, the core functionality on the cheap. Like he outsources everything and tries yeah. to do it as cost effectively as possible because he doesn't want to spend his credits foolishly and ends up fucking up and destroying himself. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny. Yeah. That see, shouldn't be cheap. Right, you shouldn't be cheap, but again that ties into the um the Maw installation story because one of the people that Durga the Hut hires is Bevel Lemelisk, who was the, the chief scientist in charge of the Death Star project at the Maw installation, who's like an old fat guy now, and tells him, like, you know, I'm gonna give you the world's shadiest equipment, we're gonna get some outdated computer parts that can barely run this ship. You know, we're going to build the focusing laser crooked and everything, but I want this thing to blow up planets because we're going to hold them hostage for money. (laughs) Oops. Yeah, it didn't work out for him, but there's just a lot of good stories in the Star Wars universe, even something like Darksaber that's kind of goofy in its concept and a little funny. It's still, I think, more compelling as a story than a lot of the stuff that came after when it was just like, you know, making up weird shit about the Force, like Force teleport, the Jedi can put themselves in hyperspace to move around, like Dragon Ball Z, the instant transmission. Like, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, well, you, you all should read about it. It's uh, apparently something that Master Jedi who are above Medichlorian power level whatever could accomplish to travel between planets and star systems without having to use a ship. And see, that's another great thing that the Star Wars Expanded Universe never indulged in was this stupid business about midichlorians that George Lucas introduced us to. Yeah, I was always that the the Force is not something everybody can use, not something everybody can feel. There is kind of a genetic lineal component to it, like if your parents are Force-sensitive, there's a good chance you will be too, but there was never a, I guess, symbiotic microscopic creatures telling you about the Force in your bloodstream explanation. Well, and and the whole thing about the Maw installation, but, you know, of course, that great plot explanation, that great backstory for the Death Star and all the other super weapons, George Lucas fixed it for us, quote-unquote, by introducing the fact that, oh, it was actually the little Geonosian guys who were the first designers of the Death Star, and they give the plans to Count Dooku, who gives them to the Emperor, who then starts building it at the end of the third movie. And it takes him, like, 20 years to build, and then that one gets blown up, but he has another one almost finished, like, three years later. Right. I mean, it just makes total sense. It's, It's how it should work. Did you ever see how they resolve that, and they try to combine the two, though? No, how they the, do? The Geonosian plans were no good. They were a little fucked up. So when Moff Tarkin was building the Death Star in the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith, he goes, hmm, something isn't right here. I better outsource this to my secret Imperial Research Center I set up. And and, and that's <laughs> how they got the plans of the Monstellation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He faxed them over and they said, hmm, yeah, you need to put this bolt here and that's wrong. And then they built the Death Star properly. That was uh, how they resolved that. Okay, don't trust cheap Geonosian architects. Yeah, the Geonosian labor pool is just no good. They're using bad plaster and drywall. 
Yeah, they were trying to do everything on the cheap, and you know, I think they were stealing tools. Yeah. That's no good. Yeah, so, I don't know. I, I don't think I have anything left to say about the, the Star Wars Expanded Universe. I've, I've said my piece about my favorite, Shadows of the Empire. Yeah, I would recommend that everybody, if you have the time, read it all, because it's all pretty good. But if you only have, I would say, the time to read five books, well, no, I guess six books. Shadows of the Empire certainly explains more interestingly, explains in a more interesting fashion, I guess, would be the proper way to say that. Kind of the antagonism inherent to like the Empire relationship, like Darth Vader and the Emperor. There's that's the, a conflict in there that uh, Prince like, Shizor, I guess is how his name is supposed to be said. Yeah. The Black Sun crime lord is trying to exploit, which makes sense. Darth Vader and the Emperor wouldn't exactly be pals, although I guess this new book may change that. That was interesting to me. Uh, I like Dash Rendar because he was all the douchey parts of Han Solo, but without any of the the jerk with the heart of gold thing, he just really didn't care. He didn't give a fuck, he just wanted his money. I thought that was interesting compared to like Luke Skywalker, who was kind of like, let's go get him, guys. And this dude's like, just fucking pay me, I don't care. That was interesting and entertaining. But I would recommend you read Shadows of the Empire, read the Heir to the Empire trilogy, and then read the duology that finishes up the Heir to the Empire, which is the was it Spectres of the Past, Visions of the Future. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my recommendation for the six books to read, which is, you know, six films, six books. Could be a good pick. Although I think that uh, the books are better than at least three of those films. Wait, wait, wait. So, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Hope you found this entertaining. If you're driving somewhere, we certainly ate up about an hour of your time. Uh, Sam may or may not be back next week. He's still frozen in carbonite. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you then.